I'm going to open to Leviticus 23. That's where we'll start. We covered most of your handout last time. Uh, we looked at the major themes of Leviticus. Can I see your handout? Let me open in prayer. And If anybody's working behind me, y'all can just ignore them. Lord, we're thankful to study your word, to look once more at the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus. We're happy, Lord, to consider what it teaches us. And I, I pray that it would uh, help us to know of your holiness and how we are to be holy before you only because of Christ, our sacrifice. So we pray this in his name. Amen. So on your handout, if you're following along, we, we went through introductory material. Um, we went through the outline, key chapters. We're going to come back and look at chapter 23 in some more detail. I didn't really cover the feast. We spent a lot of time on the sacrifices, though. So there's five sacrifices, seven feasts. And then uh, key passages and key people. And then I mentioned some helpful resources. So, so the page two was that big table on the sacrifices. And do you recall, what, what's the theme of Leviticus? You can even look down if you want. Why, why are these sacrifices necessary? Who, who knows that? What's the theme? And that ties into why we have to, or why they had to do those sacrifices. One word for the theme. God's holiness. Which deals with, right? It, it interacts with our sin in this book. Uh, because man's sinful, man's born into sin. So that was the burnt offering. And then you had the grain offering, which was to render tribute to God. This was your free offerings, your giving uh, to tribute God for his sovereign power and strength. Then your peace offerings, your thank offerings, your vow and free will, really all combined. Uh, these were offerings that were extra, above and beyond. These were not tithes. These were things that you were giving to God out of your own heart, out of your love for him. Then you had a sin offering. That was to atone for unwitting sin, sin that you had stumbled into. And then a guilt offering to repair a breach of faith. So I have a new chart for you this week, if we can get the screen working on my slide. Uh, it's really out of MacArthur's Systematic Theology, I think it's also in the Study Bible, on these feasts and how they're made complete in Christ, or will be at His return. And then we'll look at some selected interpretive problems. Leviticus, God's holiness. Is that working behind me? Okay, so there was our table on the offerings, key chapters. And we're going to look at the seven feasts in chapter 23. There it is. Christ fulfills Israel's feasts. So what are the feasts? It's Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost, trumpets, atonement, and the feast of booths. So I think we're familiar with Passover. Passover is to celebrate what? The passing over of the firstborn as they were redeemed or delivered out of Egypt. So God saved his people. He saved Israel out of Egypt. He redeemed them and the last plague which was to come on Egypt before God took them out was the firstborn dying, firstborn of the people, firstborn of animals. But God would pass over the Israelites, not because they were the most holy, not because they were the most perfect, 
but because he loved them before he chose them. God for loved them. He loved them before he chose Abraham, who was their father. And so he tells them, here's how you're not going to lose your firstborn. Put the lamb's blood on the doorposts and on the, the crossbar across the door. And if you do that, that's a symbol of your faithfulness. That's a symbol of following God. If you do what he says, then you're not going to get punished like everyone else did in that land. And so he tells them to remember it every year. Now when Christ comes, what is he? Is he a sacrificial lamb? We see that language a lot. By the, by the time we get to Isaiah 53, we see that. But let's just look at 1 Corinthians 5.7. 1 Corinthians 5.7. So Passover in, instituted in Exodus and it's reminded in Leviticus. The first eight verses of Leviticus 23. And now we go to 1 Corinthians 5.7. And this tells us something about Christ. What do you think it's going to say? He is our Passover. It says, uh, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened for Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. So in this feast every year, they take the lamb up and they would cut its throat, let it bleed, and then be able to go back home and have a feast. Well, Christ is the Passover. We don't die, even though we deserve to, if we're in Christ. We don't receive eternal death because he is our sacrificial lamb. Then immediately following that was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this would last for a week, and this was where they could not eat leavened bread. So the Passover sort of starts this week of feast. On a certain night, they would gather together. Christ at the Last Supper next day starts the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So what is all of this about? What are these feasts about? Every week you have a Sabbath. Every week you rest. But a feast is what? How is that different than a Sabbath? So every Sunday you come to worship on the Lord's Day. Hopefully you don't have to do too much work. But when you have a feast at your house, it's a celebration. Not only is it a day off, you get to eat a lot, a whole lot. You get to celebrate. You get to praise the Lord. And you would have to do sacrifices. But remember, most of the regular sacrifices, you got to take home something to eat. Well, these really get to take home a lot to eat. They say at Passover, there was somewhere around 250,000 lambs being slaughtered in the days of Christ. That's a lot of blood. That's a lot of grills going, a lot of barbecues happening, right? Yeah. Throughout the year, that you know, they're having some nice uh, food here. And even today, you have what's called a, a Seder. So the Jews will have a Seder. They can't do really the Passover because they can't slaughter the animal, but they can pretend, we might say, that they're celebrating this meal. So they have the Passover. They have the unleavened bread for seven days. They can't eat any leavened bread. Why? Because it symbolized their quick exit from Egypt. Remember, God said, don't, don't even let your bread rise. You're going to be out of here tonight. So that is, again, pointing back to Exodus. Now let's look at 1 Corinthians again, 5.8. I should have kept my finger there. So Leviticus has been, all these sacrifices have been completed in Christ, or will be when he returns, all the feasts. Um, but it's still a lesson for us. And Paul is writing, is he writing to Jews in 1 Corinthians? Who's he writing to? 
mostly Gentiles. I'm sure there's some Jews among them, but it's mostly Gentiles. And he's pointing out Christ is our Passover. And in verse 8, therefore, let us celebrate the feast. Which feast? The one that happens right after Passover. Not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So he points back. He points back to these Old Testament feasts. Why? Because Christ has done it for us. His sinlessness, his sinlessness is what uh, he lived out for us. He, he lived a perfect life so he could be our sacrifice. So he could be our unleavened bread, if you want to say that. What did he keep telling his disciples? Watch out for the leaven of what? The Pharisees. Why? Why leaven of the Pharisees? Is, is yeast bad? Is it from the devil? No, it's a, it's a metaphor. It's a reminder that came about by the time of Christ that leaven would spread throughout the whole lump of bread. What happens to sin? What happens to legalism of the Pharisees? Spreads. You let it in the church. You let it in your body, body of Christ. It spreads. And so Passover reminds them each year that God passed over them. Unleavened bread is supposed to spur them on towards holiness. And then the sinlessness of Christ is a way that accomplishes that feast. The first fruits. The first fruits. So another March, April uh, feast. And that's uh, where they would bring in their first fruits. Much of what I just read, really, from Leviticus 23 is the first fruits there. And the first fruit every year, they're to bring it in, give it to the Lord, have a big feast. Does Christ fulfill that? He does. 1 Corinthians 15, 23. He's writing to these Gentiles, Paul is, but he, he's pulling in Old Testament verses. These are important. 15, 23. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ in his coming. So it doesn't say necessarily the feast of first fruits, but he is the first fruits of God's work in redemption, in salvation. He is the first one to be resurrected, in other words. Chapter 15 of Corinthians is all about the resurrection, and he is the first fruits to the Lord, just like Israel would bring in their first fruits of their produce. Pentecost, that's important to the Christian, isn't it? Pentecost. What's Pentecost. 50 days after Passover, they would celebrate this holiday, this feast called Pentecost. It happened 50 days after the Passover. And we know that's mirrored in Acts, isn't it? In fact, when we say Pentecost, we first don't, we don't think of the feast in the Old Testament, do we? Or we think of what? Acts 1. Hopefully you just don't think of speaking in tongues. But By the way, what did they do when they spoke in tongues? Were they babbling? Yeah, they were speaking in other languages they did not know before. So let's look at that. Acts uh, 1.5 and 2.4. Yeah, 1.5, let's see. For John baptizes while there, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So he's saying uh, the Spirit will come upon you. Then we see that happen in 2.4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So again, it's not a direct connection to the feast here, but it is on Pentecost. It's a new Pentecost, in a sense. It replaces the old. Of course, we don't have to follow feasts of the Old Testament, but it's interesting how God works through Christ 
to fulfill these, to match up, to uh, really abrogate these feasts. So we have a new Pentecost. We don't really celebrate Pentecost, but we could. Some some churches do. They they have a day just like Resurrection Sunday. Well, then, you know, 50 days later, they have a Pentecost Sunday. Uh, we could we could do that. It wouldn't be wrong. It's not required of us, though. It's not even required that we celebrate Christmas or Resurrection Sunday. We do that because we can. But uh, here's Pentecost, a pouring out of the Spirit. So much better than the Pentecost they celebrated before. And the Feast of Trumpets. Feast of Trumpets would be in September or October. Um, we don't have time necessarily to go through all these because I want to get to the, or go through these in detail because I want to get to the interpretive issues for Leviticus. But the Feast of Trumpets, um, Christ fulfills in Israel's regathering. Matthew twenty four thirty one. So let's look at that. Matthew twenty four thirty one. Just want to s- connect up with the New Testament. should be reading the book of Leviticus on your own. Next week we'll, we'll move to Numbers, so try to be reading along so you can put all these things together. And uh, Remember, I'm just giving a brief overview here in class. Um, 2431. Uh, where were we? 2431. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. So trumpets are a calling together of God's people. Israel was called together by the Feast of Trumpets. And then we have Christ who will come back and he will send out his angels and a great trumpet will blast and all the elect will be gathered from all around the world to meet him. Uh, Atonement. Atonement. September, October. We've already talked about the sacrifice of atonement. And there would be this big feast on that day. And that's the substitutionary sacrifice by Christ. We spoke much of that last week. I'll just read to you briefly Romans eleven twenty six. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Sion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them. And he goes on, when I will take away their sins. So what is removal of sins? That was the Day of Atonement. The removal of sins from the nation went out on the scapegoat, which is an interpretive issue we'll look at today. And then the other lamb went to be sacrificed, or goat, and, and they would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat to propitiate God's wrath. So you have a removal of sin. Christ did that at the cross. And he also propitiated God's wrath. Those are two separate things that we think of as one, but both were accomplished on the cross. And it's better. It's better. Why is it better than the sacrifice of the atonement and the feast of atonement? Why is, why is Christ once for all sacrifice better? Well, it's the ultimate sacrifice. It's more powerful. It was actually efficacious. The other ones were just pointing. It doesn't have to be done every year. You don't have to go up every year, Hector, and go through that whole process and watch the high priest do all that for you. We don't even need a high priest because we have Christ as our high priest. Now, many people want to go back. Many people want to go back to these. A lot of legalists love these. You have the, the Hebrew roots movement and other like-minded peoples today. They're trying to put themselves back under these laws. They're, they're honoring all these feasts by law. They're doing all, I don't know how they do the sacrifices, but um, they're trying to live back under the law. And I think that's a movement away from Christ. They're saying Christ isn't enough. We have to dress like the Hebrew people did in those days. We have to have the feast like that. We have to do all the things that they did 
under the law. Last one, Feast of Booths. They would come up to Jerusalem. They would live in booths, which are like a little shelter, like Jonah lived outside of Nineveh when he was waiting to watch the city to see what God would do. It was a little shelter made out of sticks, made out of wood. Uh, You might throw up a little plywood shelter in your backyard, and that would be considered a booth. It was for rest. It symbolized rest, and we see that it's going to ultimately be fulfilled in Christ when Christ returns. So let me read to you Zechariah. Nobody's turning to Zechariah with me? Come on. You already there, Carl? You want to read that for us? Uh, I'll read it. 14, 16. Um, We have, Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went up against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. So this seems to be one that, while not present now, will be present in the kingdom when Christ returns. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them if the family of Egypt doesn't go up. And he goes on to say, they'll, essentially, there will they'll be a type of punishment. They get lazy. They don't go up. Remember, if you were in our theology class, not everybody in the kingdom has their redeemed bodies. There are people who got in that were still alive. They had children. That's who Satan gathers to rebel against him at the end. Uh, to rebel against Christ at the end of a thousand years. But Zechariah 14, if you read it in context, you start at the beginning there of chapter 14, it's clearly talking about the return of Christ. When he comes back, when he touches down on the Mount of Olives, uh, there's a great earthquake in Jerusalem. They're being attacked. The Messiah comes back, God himself, and defeats all the enemies. And then they begin to have these feasts of booths again. So we'll be reunited with Christ and we'll be resting in him. Let's go to some selected interpretive problems. What is the tent of meeting? You might think this isn't really a problem because we, we know what that is, right? It's the tabernacle. But to Bible scholars, this is a problem. Because sometimes it's called a, it's tent of meeting and other times it's the tabernacle. So which is it? Is it both for the same thing or are this two different things? So let's look at Exodus where this is first mentioned. Because this is where the sacrifices in uh, Leviticus will take place. They're going to take place outside in the courtyard. Uh, the Day of Atonement, they're going inside to throw the blood on the mercy seat. This is pretty important. Plus, uh, Moses keeps going into the tent of meeting. And so what is Is that a special tent just for Moses? That would be option A here. The tent where Yahweh had spoken to Moses. Or is it what's later referred to just as a tabernacle? 33.7, Now Moses uh, used to take the tent, he just calls it a tent, and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp, and he called it, to the, he called it the tent of meeting. So he calls this tent the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. It came about whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would arise and stand and each at the entrance of his tent and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. So they would all go out. Moses goes in to represent them before God. Whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. The Lord would speak with Moses. 
When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship each at the entrance of his tent. So they're all pitched around this tent of meeting and they're looking at it. And so uh, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face there just as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. So Joshua is always there guarding it in a sense. Moses goes in and out. If we go to Exodus 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So is that two things or one thing? Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Then skipping forward to Numbers 7.87. So you can see in those last few verses there of Exodus, it almost seems like there's two tents. And then we're going forward to Numbers, which we'll cover next week. 7.89. It's a big chapter when you have 89 verses. Now when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with him, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim, so he spoke to them. So I think that's the verse that brings these two things together because it's clear that in the tabernacle, the ark is there and the mercy seat is there. So if we were confused from Exodus 40, Numbers, by the time you get to Numbers, we're not confused anymore. What am I going to go with? It's the tabernacle. The tent of meeting is the tabernacle. It's just the way it's described in the beginning of Exodus. Um, it, it's, it's confusing to us. But remember, they're building these things. God, God is meeting with Moses while they're building all the stuff to go in. And later it just gets called the tabernacle. From then on out, the tent of meeting isn't used a whole lot, but it's a tabernacle. What is a tabernacle? It's not the, the little Pentecostal thing they set up on the road when they come through town, but it's, it's a big tent. That's what a tabernacle is. It's a shelter. It's a tent. Paul talks about uh, making tents, and our body is our tent. Or some translations, I think the King James calls it a tabernacle in the New Testament. So they're the same. Not really a hard one, but you can see if you're going through Exodus how it might be confusing. Here's the big one. I think I was talking with someone about this a few weeks ago. What does it mean to make atonement? Why is this a problem? Was that you I was talking with, Greg, about this? Why is this a problem? Why is the Day of Atonement a hard thing for us when we look at it going back from the New Testament? Because Christ is our atonement. So what exactly was happening on the Day of Atonement. Because it says it's to make atonement. Leviticus 1.4 He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. So that's not even the Day of Atonement. That's just a burnt offering. Uh, being atone, atoning sacrifice for 
the sinfulness of that person. You're born in sin. You're corrupt. You're depraved. Your heart desires sin. Even as an Israelite in those days, what do you do? What do you do to be right with God? You have to do these burnt offerings. It's to make atonement. And then we go forward to the day each year that the high priest does it for the nation. So you're doing it in the burnt offering, but for actual acts of sin, that's the day of atonement. High priest is doing it 1630. Whereas on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. So what's happening? Our options are listed. There's quite a few. Some of these seem really close. Is it just covering sin for a while? Is it a covering? You know, there's something over here and you just throw a cover on it and deal with it later. Is that what God was doing with these atonement sacrifices? Was he just covering up the sin, not in a negative way, but in other words, putting it off until Christ came? And there's a sense in which that happened in Genesis 6.14. Or some might look to that as proof of this. Uh, make yourself uh, an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms, and it shall cover it inside and outside with pitch. So they would say that this idea of Noah making the ark, and the word for cover is similar to what's used throughout Leviticus. Or is it to wipe away, to purge? So we collect sin throughout our life. As an Israelite in those days, these atonements would just sort of wipe your slate clean. Then you start over getting dirty from your sin throughout the year. And each time you went up for the burnt offerings and the day of atonement, these things would wipe away sins. And we do see language of that throughout the Bible, don't we? Wiping away of sins. Let's look at Isaiah uh, 27, 9. And then Jeremiah 18, 23. Got to go forward here. Isaiah 27, 9. Therefore through this Jacob's iniquity will be forgiven, and this will be the full price of the pardoning of sins. When he makes all the altar stones like pulverized chalk stones, when ashram and incense, is that right? 27.9? Yeah, so the iniquity will be forgiven, will be wiped away. And the sense of forgiveness even in the New Testament is the idea of wiping away. The far as the east is from the west. God takes our sin and our sin guilt away. Jeremiah 18.23 this is not an easy one. I remember we had to read a paper on what did the sacrifices actually do for the Israelites. We had to read a big academic paper and seminary on it. I read that thing three times and I still was wrestling with what the author was trying to say. Jeremiah eighteen twenty three. May an outcry be heard from their houses when you suddenly bring raiders upon them for they have dug up a pit to capture me. That's not right. Wrong cry. Oh, that's 22. And yet you, O Lord, know all their deadly designs against me. Do not forgive their iniquity or blot out their sin from your sight. So forgiving, blotting out, wiping away, purging, just getting rid of it for a time, and then it comes back on every year. See, to ransom. Ransom's different. Y'all know about ransom. We recently looked at that in Ephesians 1. What is ransom? To redeem. What do you have to do when you ransom? It's paying. You're paying the price for something when you ransom something back. So God ransoms us back in Christ. He paid the price. 
Did the sacrifices pay something that the Israelites owed to God? So it wasn't so much wiping away, but they're, they're paying the price. They're paying the price. So let's just look at one. We don't have to look up all these cross-references. I don't want to put anybody to sleep this morning. You guys need some coffee? Anybody awake out there? What do y'all think I'm going to go with? You, you got one in your mind that you would go with? It's not an easy subject, is it? Exodus 21.30. All of these kind of sound good. Uh, 21.30. You probably have heard some preachers use uh, different ones uh, here. If a ransom is demanded of him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is demanded of him. So that has to do with an ox goring a man. Um, let's look for another one that might zero in on the sacrifices here. 30, 11 through 16. The Lord also spoke to Moses. <clears throat> when you take a censer of the sons of Israel, to uh, census to number them, then each of them shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them, that there will be no plague among them when you number them. So there's an idea of ransoming, paying to the Lord something owed you. Is that what the sacrifices were doing? And then lastly, to cleanse. Just simply to cleanse an object um, ready. This is used in 8.15 of Leviticus to get it ready to be used in the temple or the tabernacle. Later will be the temple. Things have to be cleansed. So since it's used for objects, maybe it's the same kind of idea, a cleansing ransom for a person. Yeah, which one is that? Oh, numbers, numbers thirty-five, death for death. Yeah, you you kill somebody, you have to ransom your life to pay them back. Uh, where are we? Leviticus eight fifteen. Next, Moses slaughtered it and took the blood, and with his finger put some of it around on the horns of the altar and purified the altar. Then he poured out the rest of the blood, uh, and he consecrated it to make atonement for it. So objects have to make atonement in a sense. They have to be cleansed. So which one? Some of these are similar. Some of these are very close. We we can't really say it's a ransom. Most of those verses that I read to you are dealing with something else going on, not a sacrifice. Um, Carl said Numbers uh, 35 was death for death when you kill someone. Uh, One was if if your ox gore somebody, you've got to ransom that back. And then 30 was the plague which was coming upon them. They had to go ahead and pay out to God because they shouldn't have done certain things and they're getting punished. Christ is the ransom. He's the final price. So we don't want to use that language unless it's very clear in the Old Testament. Better just to think of the sins being wiped away until Christ comes to have final atonement, to make final atonement, to make final propitiation. Then you don't have to you don't have to go back every year, do you, to get cleansed as a Christian? There, you're just going back every year, and, and in a sense, you're getting those sins wiped away, so you can live with God amongst His people in the land. God cannot live amongst unholy people. If they're unholy, He leaves and destroys the nation, which is what He did. But in this way, in a sense, it's allowing people to live with God. He's right there in the tabernacle, the cloud, the pillar. 
how can he be so close to them? Because they're constantly going before him and having these wiped away and purged. But ultimately, that would not have been enough because Christ has to come and he has to pay the final sacrifice. And that's what Hebrews really is all about. The blood of bulls and goats, that's not going to make atonement for you. Fully, it's going to be Christ who does it 100%. These are just wiping away until Christ comes. Any thoughts or comments on that? All right, what does it mean to be cut off from his people? So what happened when you, when you sinned? What happened when you rebelled against your parents? If you weren't stoned, you were, you were cut off. You were cut off from the people. So let's just look at a few of these. We'll look at um, Leviticus 7. So God can only live amongst holy people. What if they're not holy? What do we do with them? What if they're not clean? That's an issue too. It's not just about intentional sin, but there's times of uncleanliness. There's times when a person is not clean and God is teaching them a lesson by saying they're cut off for a time from the people. So Leviticus 7, starting in verse 20. But the person who eats the flesh of the sacrifice of peace offerings, which belong to the Lord, in his uncleanness... So if you go and, and you you eat some of the sacrifice, that even though it was your peace offering, but you were unclean when you did it, that person shall be cut off from his people. And he goes on in verse 21, when anyone touches anything unclean, whether human uncleanness or an unclean animal or any unclean detestable thing and eats of the flesh of the sacrifice of peace offerings which belong to the Lord, that person shall be cut off from his people. This is serious. You know, God's not messing around, just like with, with um, Aaron's two sons. He has commanded certain things to be done. And even when it just comes through the purification cycle that they're to go through all the time to make sure they're clean, even that, God takes serious in that day. Now, Christ has come and we don't have ourselves under this law, but this is no small matter to them. It's no small matter. You have a child you're unclean. You have to wait so many days before you can go back and worship God. Does that mean you're a sinner because you had a child? No. The baby doesn't make you a sinner. But I think, and that's kind of one of the smaller interpretive issues in the Old Testament, I think it's to remind people that you're bringing a sinner into the world. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But we can't forget that little baby's a sinner too. So there's a time of uncleanness. If you have an open sore, if you have all these different things going on in your life. What is that? Does that mean you're a sinner because you have an open sore? Well, you are a sinner, but not because you have an open sore. What's the point of that? To teach a lesson. God is holy. God is clean. It's a picture right in front of you of what uncleanness looks like. It's a picture of our heart, isn't it? You see a big oozing sore. That sticks out to you. How do you see the sin in your heart? I'm not a sinner. I don't see any sin on me. God's saying, look at these lessons that I'm teaching you with what you eat and how you dress and your health and your hygiene. All of these things point and give us a picture of what's happening inside. Uh, let's pick one going forward. Let's look at 19.8. Everyone who eats it will bear his iniquity, for he has profaned the holy thing of the Lord. That person shall be cut off from his people. So let's go back and find out what this is. Number five, verse five. Now when you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it and the next day. 
But what remains until the third day shall be burned with fire. You got to eat it up. This is a this is a feast right now. This isn't. Let's put some stuff in the fridge for next week, right? God's blessed us so much. Let's save it after this feast. Now you're trusting in the Lord every day. The feast is over. You got the next day for leftovers. Who really wants to eat it after three days without a refrigerator anyway? But they would. They would. They maybe they dried it. Maybe they smoked it. God says, no, don't do that. If everyone who eats it will bear his iniquity, for he has profaned the holy thing of the Lord, that person shall be cut off from his people. So what does this mean? Does it mean executed, stoned? Is that what it means to be cut off, killed? Does it mean just you can't come worship? So you can't come up near the tabernacle? You can't come sing to the Lord? You can't come watch the Day of Atonement? You can't watch the priests doing their work? Or are you placed under divine curse, resulting in God's judgment, including childlessness and premature death? There's no verses really to back these up because this is the best guess based on all these verses, which we're not going through all of them. It seems to be this person's under a curse. They're resulting in God's judgment. Why? Because they knew what to do, they were taught what to do, and they didn't care. They didn't care. That might include childlessness, might include premature death. But this is God's judgment on a person. We might make an analogy, it's not a perfect analogy, to excommunication from the church. What happens when a person comes in, oh yes, I'm a believer, I love the Lord, I'm saved by Jesus Christ, I believe He's my Lord and Savior. And then they just completely disobey all the commands of the Lord. Or just just a few big ones, you know, worship pagan statues at their house and commit adultery every day. What do we do? Come on, you're welcome. Come on back in. No big deal. Bring your idols with you when you come to church. No, we're going to do church discipline, Matthew 18. We're going to go through that. They're cut off from God's people. We don't curse them, but if they are an unbeliever and they have profaned God's name, he can discipline them. Paul talks about that, doesn't he? What does Paul say? I turn them over to Satan so that Satan might teach them a lesson. We don't put them under a curse. We don't judge them. That's God. And it's very clear in the Old Testament, he wanted people like that out of the camp because he is living amongst them. Christ is living in us as New Testament Christians. No, I mean, there's not a clear verse to really tell us. You just read all of these passages throughout the Old Testament even, and... It seems like they're always put out there. They're cut off. They're not able to come back. They're probably joining some more tribes out there. Or some people believe, some scholars believe, there's sort of a tribe of cut off people, a group of them sort of following Israel around, maybe living off the scraps. It's hard to say. We don't really know a lot of what's going on in Leviticus and Numbers as far as around the camp and outside the camp. So uh, it's not just excommunicated from worship because it says they're to be put outside the camp. So I, I think A would be better than B. No, yeah, the the child is just more, I was giving a reference to cleanness and uncleanness. This is not, un, uncleanness would be you can't go up to worship. Yeah, that's better for B. This isn't about uncleanness. This is the phrase cut off from his people. This is not just people who are unclean, but people who have disobeyed the Lord. But they're not being stoned immediately. 
It doesn't seem like. Maybe. Maybe they're getting put outside the camp in stone. Sometimes that's specifically mentioned. But this phrase comes up. We can look at maybe a couple more. Let's look at chapter 20 since we're right there. Yeah, uncleanness is a whole whole another thing. But if you're unclean, you know you're unclean, and then you do something God has said you should not do when you're unclean, then you're clearly disobeying the commands. That would essentially be like you walked into the tabernacle and just did what you want. Here, let me have some bread. Let me have some meat. And you know, people would, would stone you for doing that. Chapter 20, let's look at 3, 5, and 6. I will also set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given some of his offspring to Moloch so as to defile my sanctuary to profane my holy name. So this is sacrificing uh, to the God Moloch, put, putting you, burning your kids. If uh, Verse 5, Then I myself will set my face against that man and against his family. I will cut off from among their people both him and all those who play the harlot after him by playing the harlot after Molech. So this is a serious sin. God's not going to stand for it. Verse 6, As for the person who turns to mediums and to spiritists to play the harlot after them, I will also set my face against the person and will cut him off from among his people. So setting his face against them is is a, a judgment phrase. God is setting his face against them, not for blessing, but for judgment. Uh, 17 and 18. If there's a man who takes his sister, his father's daughter, or his mother's daughter, so that he sees her nakedness and she sees his nakedness, it is a disgrace. So this isn't just seeing them naked, but uh, sexual activity. And they shall be cut off in the sight of the sons of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness. He bears his guilt. So you commit incest, you are cut off. You are outside the camp. If there's a man who lies with a a menstruous woman and uncovers her nakedness. He has laid bare her flow and she has exposed the flow of her blood. Thus both of them shall be cut off from among their people. Why? Because God clearly already told them not to do that. They all know. It's a matter of life and death. It's not like you accidentally wake up and you break one of these. You know these cleanliness laws. This is everyday life. Every month, woman's cycle comes around. This is the kind of stuff you just know from a little boy and a little girl. You know these things. And you're intentionally disobeying and making a mockery really before everyone else. Is that clear? More clear? All right. What did uh, Nadab and Abihu do? What did they actually do? So Leviticus 10.1, we looked at it a couple of weeks ago. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. There was a great conference on this, Strange Fire, a few years ago. Uh, really, really just taking this as a, an analogy for all the crazy things going on in the charismatic world. But what happened here? Because there's a lot mentioned in that verse. There's fire pans, there's fire, there's incense, and then actually the burning of the incense. So what did they do? Did they go all the way into the most holy place? Was that what they did? Because what did God say? Only the high priest once a year. You go in there any other time. Anybody else, you're going to die. Did they get coals from somewhere else, not the altar? They're supposed to take coals from the altar. The one that's uh, burning the sacrifices outside. They're just take a coal and use that in their fire pans. Did they break that law? 
Did they have the wrong kind of incense? So it didn't smell right? It didn't have the right kind of smoke? Or was it the wrong time of day? What do you guys think? This is a, probably C. Most of us think C. But it's B, according to my professor in seminary. I would go with B or C. B, calls not from the altar. Let's look at Leviticus 16.2. Uh, I think C is, is one that I've held for a long time. Again, this is not a huge, like, you're not saved if you pick C or B or something. It's just trying to interpret Scripture rightly. So, 16.12. He shall take a fire pan full of coals of fire from upon the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense, and burn it inside the veil. So, it's very important where you get the coals, it's very important that you get two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense. And then you bring it inside the veil. That's the first veil, not the most holy place veil. So going back to 10.1. They took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire. So it doesn't tell us where they got the coals. I think that's why people tend to go with B. It's so specific in 1612 that they have to have coals from a special place. But let's go for, or go back to Exodus 30, 30. Let's look at this incense command. 30:34. And the Lord said to Moses, "Take for yourself spices, stacti, onica, galbanum. Who knows what those are?" Anybody? Anybody deal with spices? You don't deal with spices on an everyday basis? Who who cooks with these spices? <laughs> these are incense spices. So maybe if you're into like burning incense in your house, you would know these. Spices with pure frankincense. There shall be an equal part of each. With it you shall make incense, a perfume. The work of a perfumer. You shall beat some of it very fine. And then he goes on to indicate what it is. Probably not incense also. I think we could... We could maybe lean more towards B because it takes a while to beat up some new incense. And this seems like something they did real quick. Very, You know, these two boys weren't paying attention. They weren't being careful. Maybe they were lazy. Maybe they were careless. Here's a little fire right here. We'll just grab some of these coals. I mean, what's the big deal? God doesn't care. God's a loving God. It doesn't, doesn't matter for us if we have a men in tights dancing up here during church. It doesn't matter, does it? doesn't matter. We, we can have a, a play. We can dress up. You know, preachers and pastors rap all the time now, and they, they have these costumes that they dress up in, football uniforms, dress up as Darth Vader and come out and speak in the Darth Vader language, our voice. doesn't matter, right? Well, it mattered then, and it matters now. It's just that God's not wiping people out. Um, he's, he's very patient right now. So B or C, probably lean towards B. Last one, I think, right? You guys have any more than five on your handout? Six. Oh, we've got to go fast. we only got three minutes. Okay, this is a big one. We were already talking about unclean. What's the problem with unclean animals? Who's heard it's unhygienic? That's why they didn't eat it. Anybody? I, I've heard that a lot, right? In fact, a lot of people still teach that, that you don't eat pork, not because there's anything wrong or sinful. The only reason they didn't eat it is because it's bad for you. Joel Osteen says you still shouldn't eat pork as a Christian. He's still not that we listen to Joel Osteen, but he, he's uh, legalistic, and a lot of people are like that. You should not eat pork. I've seen friends that I've known um, post on social media 
They, they hold to this. Uh, we won't read chapter 11 because I think most of you know unclean animals was a list of animals. Uh, if certain things about them, scales or no scales, hooves or no hooves, you know, how their hoof divides and all that. Basically pigs, shrimp, catfish. What else? Those are the big ones we would, we would eat, right? You guys eat catfish? I know Ernest eats catfish. Yeah. You can't eat it in Leviticus though. It's unclean. Not fried catfish. That's the only way to eat it is fried. Uh, are these pagan sacrificial animals? So are they saying, uh, you know, don't eat pagan sacrificial animals? I think we can rule that out because there's no, there might be some stragglers around the camp doing pagan sacrifices, but it's not like they can, a million people, two million people can't just go out and, and grab some pagan animals from pagans out in the desert, which they're going to be in numbers. Animals used to make a distinction between the Israel. Anytime you see something this long, you know that's the right answer, right? He says the long animals used to make a distinction between Israel and the nations. Clean animals symbolized Israel. Unclean animals symbolized the Gentiles. We could also make it personal, right? Clean animals symbolize purity before the Lord. Unclean animals symbolizes guilt and sin. Uh, D, a reminder of the spiritual condition of humans. Not necessarily for your own sin, but just all of us, mankind, is um, sinful. Really, this is just given to the, who's it given to? All mankind or Israel, just the Jews. So C is looking pretty good. If it's another, if it's another color than C, we're gonna, I'm going to be in trouble because it's two weeks ago that I did these slides. Arbitrary distinctions, rationale on, only known to God. That's a cop-out answer, right? Who knows, you know? We can't know the mind of God. Predestination, election, who cares, right? Okay, C. Animal juice to make a distinction. I'm, I'm glad I guessed that one right. See, um, it's, a, it's a lesson. It's an everyday lesson. Many metaphors are used in the New Testament. Leaven versus unleavened. Watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. Uh, clean versus dirty. We're not given these commands, but it's a picture every day that they saw. They are living in the midst of a holy God. That should be a holy people. Okay, last one. This is a fun one. It's the last one on your handout. I don't think I added any. Who's Azazel in the Day of Atonement sacrifices? Who's got an ESV? Don't be shy. Read it. Read an ESV on uh, uh, sixteen twenty-six, Leviticus sixteen twenty-six. So the Day of Atonement, one goat's sacrificed blood's put on the um, ark, the mercy seat. The other one goes out somewhere. Where is he going? Six, yeah, ESV. Who's got that? Kristen? Um, 16.8 might be better. So one, one goat's going to the Lord and the other's going to Azazel. Verse 10. Same thing, right? But the goat on which the lot for the, or Azazel, fell, shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, to make it, uh, send it into the wilderness. So what is this? That's actually the word in Hebrew. It's Azazel. And then 1626, last time it's used here. Can you read that one, uh, Kristen? So the goat's going to Azazel. What do, what do most translations say? Scapegoat. Yeah. 
scapegoat. That's our English word for it. Um, that, that might help you with what we're going to pick here, but where's, uh, where's Chris? Chris not here? He's in the sound booth. What's Azazel, Chris? We were talking about this the other day. Yeah, a, a big um, thought is that it's a demon. And so the ESV just says, you know what, we're not going to pick. We're just going to transliterate it exactly from Hebrew to English. Most translations put scapegoat there. So is it the goat that departs? The Septuagint, the early translation from Hebrew to Greek, said it was the goat that departs. And the most early translations. People who say, well, it's kind of like an Arabic word that sounds like Azazel. It just means removal, complete destruction. Later, Rabbi said, we don't know what it is, but it's probably the desert terrain out there. He's going to go die somewhere. And then the book of Enoch, which was written after the Old Testament, it's not an inspired book. It says it's the name of a demon. And then some modern scholars say, well, there you go. Enoch, you know, the New Test- I mean, the Old Testament, talking about the same thing. It must be the name of a demon. This thing goes to Satan and this one goes to God. That really doesn't work with one of those verses you read. I think it was verse 8 or maybe 10. Because it says it's make atonement before the Lord. Nowhere does Satan get paid for an atonement. So we have to go with A, the goat that departs, which is where we get our English word scapegoat. You put the, the sin goes to the goat as a picture, and then the goat runs out and departs. It's going to die. Of course it's going to die in the wilderness, but the idea is it's a removal of your sin. The sacrifice is signifying a removal, a wiping away, a purging that we already looked at. And why is it Azazel? I don't know. Sometimes they use words. They use it in that one context, and you know, 3,000 years later, we're not going to be able to figure out what the word was. But it seems like from the context, this word is dealing with a departing, a word that means to depart. Not a demon, although there are lots of mystical people in Kabbalah, Jewish Kabbalah, really likes this idea of Azazel as a demon. But we're not going there, so it's not wrong with the ESV. They just didn't uh, interpret it, probably interpreted better as a scapegoat. Alright, let's pray. We'll close up. Went a little over. Next week, what are we covering? The next book. What is the next book, Lance? Numbers. Read Numbers. It's fun. Lord, we thank you for the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the first five books. It was, it was a lot of, of fun to read it, uh, to see what happened so long ago. But it's also serious in that we see you are holy. And you expect that sinners would come before you in the right way, the way that you have prescribed. And that as your people, we would live a holy and righteous life. And when we don't, we ask you for forgiveness. We confess our sins and you cleanse us even today from our unrighteousness. We thank you for that. We praise you for that. Amen.